A very good morning to each one of you. It's such a pleasure again uh, to bring the word of the Lord to each one of you. And I hope you're as excited as I am to bring this word. And at this time, I really want to take time to thank Pastor Victor and the team for giving me the opportunity to teach and to preach because it has helped me to go deeper into the word. Uh, especially the minor prophets have really been so thoroughly enjoying the study of the word. And I hope as we look at it together today that you will also be able to study and you will be able to understand the word better and the word will impact your lives, bringing a transformation. As I mentioned in the last time, we are going to be doing expository Bible study. So as we look at the scriptures, it's important that you have your Bibles with you. You have a notebook, you have a pen and a paper in which you can make some notes, you can do some marking. So I will give you 30 seconds now. If you don't have your Bibles with you, please go ahead, pick up your Bible and then come. So that you're able to have a deeper study. If you are comfortable with the electronic device, maybe your iPad or your laptop or your mobile phone, your Bible, you're able to mark there, make notes, that's also fine. But as we study the Word, it's important that each one of us is able to have the sword with us while we get into the battle. As we study, we need the Word of God with us. I know some of us are so comfortable getting the verses on the screen. We just look at it. But nothing like you marking it in your Bible, making notes as to what God is speaking to you personally. So that will be of great help. I hope you got your Bibles now and a pen and a paper. And uh, please follow along as we do continue with the book of Zechariah today. But before I go there, shall we just pray together and ask the Lord to bless the word. Father, we pray this morning that even as we study your word, let your word come alive. Let your word, Lord, come alive into the situations and circumstances that each one of us is in, Lord. And I pray that you will minister to us even through this word, Lord. Father, not just our knowledge will increase about your word, but your spirit will do something deep inside our hearts, Lord, that we will experience the power of God working in us even this morning. We thank you, we praise you, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You know, I want to start with the story of what happened to me. Uh, you know, one of these days when I was, uh, I have this habit of using voice-activated features in many of the devices. So I speak into the device and ask the device to do something. And I frequently use uh, Siri in iPhone. One of the days I was driving back home from office, as I was driving, I told Siri, hey Siri, call Amma. After a while, Siri responded back saying, I don't know who your mom is. That was funny, I laughed to myself. But another incident happened, I also have the habit of using voice activated thing in my WhatsApp messages. Here I was sending a very long message to my friend. Uh, he's a close friend of mine. I sent him a long message. At the end of it, I dictated saying, I love you, buddy. What I didn't realize is I didn't cross-check the message. I sent it out. My friend responded back saying, what is this? And he highlighted that. And it went as, I love your body. 
You know, why am I saying this? Sometimes when we're reading the books of prophets, it can be like that the author intended something, but what we understand is totally something else. Or what we read into is totally something else. It can be funny when it comes to voice-activated devices, but when we misinterpret the Word of God, it's not so funny. So it's important that we learn how to study the Word of God and how to go, especially considering that the book of Zechariah is one of the most difficult books among the minor prophets to interpret. More so because it comes with so much of apocalyptic writing and we need to really study deeper to understand what the author really meant so that there's no misunderstanding what it is. As I mentioned last time, book of Zechariah is a book that has maximum number of messianic prophecies. That means it's talking about Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming like no other book other than the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has the maximum. Zechariah has the second highest. In fact, authors say that Zechariah has more messianic prophecies put together all the, than all the minor prophets put together. And that's the kind of messianic prophecies that are there. So I want us to understand that we need to really study this word a little deeper. As we go into this, I want to recap what we did in part one of Zechariah. If you have not listened to it, I suggest that you go back to Adonai Tube and listen to it because there is a lot of background that I am setting in part one which gives you the context in which we are studying the book of Zechariah. Once you understand the context, it becomes easier for us to understand the book itself. We looked at re refining process requires continual surrender. In part 1, chapter 1, verse 1 to 6, this was the title, refining process requires continual surrender. We looked at three points under that. We said God remembers, God reminds us to return to him, and thirdly, God restores. God's restoration or call to break the patterns, patterns that we have inherited from our parents or from our generations that God reminds us. Let's quickly jump now into part two. And I have titled today's message as Presence, Prayer, and Passion. Presence, Prayer, and Passion. That's the title of the message that I've given today. Let's look at the background. Just a recap to say how the children of Israel were taken captives to Babylon and they came back, around 50,000 of them, came back to the land of Jerusalem, to the land of Judah, to Jerusalem. They came to establish their own homes and to build the temple. And soon we know that they got discouraged because the opponents that were there, the opposing nation, people that were there, began to oppose the construction of the temple. And people got cozy in living their own lives and, and wondering why has God forgotten us? Because they were not able to build the temple. They did not see the prosperity that they had experienced once as a nation during the time of Solomon during the time of David. They did not see anymore the miracles that were there that happened during the time that they left the land of Egypt and came to the land of Cana. 
they were still struggling or grappling with this question of what is happening to them. And that's the time God brings Haggai. We saw that when we studied the book of Haggai. And three months into Haggai's prophecy comes Zechariah. There's a one month overlap between them. And Zechariah begins to prophesy. My friends, if you have been a Christian long enough, you understand this one thing. That we, in our lives, in spite of our faith, in spite of our walk with God, sometimes go through struggles, sometimes go through trials, sometimes go through pain. And we ask ourselves a question, why isn't God working now the way he worked then? Or we may be comparing ourselves and saying, why is God not working in my life as much as he's working in someone else's life? And this struggle can go on. Like the, uh, like the writer of Psalm 73, Asaf says, you know, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Because he's going through so much pain. He says, for I have been stricken all day and chastened every morning. When you go through the trials, you come to this point of being able to say, God, why is this happening to me? Children of Israel was going through that. And it's in that context that Zechariah brings first the admonition that we saw in verse 1 to verse 6 of chapter 1. And now today we will be looking from verse 7 all the way to 17. And I want to read, it, read to us what happens in verse 7. If you, if you have your Bibles, I would like you to read along with me. It says, on the 24th day of the 11th month... Be mindful of the time here. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. You know, this is a significant time here. We're going to read the rest of the scriptures together, but just let's dwell a little bit here to know the timing. You know, just... Six verses back in verse 1, Zechariah had already given some timing. And then he gives another timing here. And he says the 24th day of the 11th month. So this is three months. There's a gap of three months between verse 6 and verse 7. After three months comes the second prophecy. Or this doesn't come in the, in the, in the form of he's speaking something. This prophecy comes in the form of the visions that he sees. And we will look at these visions together. What is significant about it? It comes three months after the first prophecy and five months after the temple construction had started. Now the temple construction had started and here were people being obedient now by the call of Haggai. Haggai had encouraged them to start the construction. Zechariah had come to encourage them more and they had begin the, begun the construction. As they begin the construction, we find that God is giving revelation now, not just about the current encouragement like Haggai did, but God is giving to Zechariah future of what will happen to Israel. 2,500 years later, when we, when we stand now and study the book of Zechariah, we see that this is nothing but history of Israel, what God had taken them through. But for Zechariah, it was the future. He was talking into the future and God was revealing it. What are we going to learn from this? When the people began to obey the word, God's revelation came in a greater measure. 
My friends, what's in it for us here? This word comes to remind us that nothing brings pleasure to the heart of God like our obedience. Nothing brings nothing 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 brings pleasure to the heart of God like our obedience. Some of us may be good preachers, good students of the word of God. Some of us may be good musicians. Some of us may be good worship leaders. You know, it really doesn't matter. Those things are important. But if you are a great worship leader and you're living in sin, it doesn't matter how good a worship leader you are. If you are a good student of the word, you know the word end to end, you study it thoroughly, but if you're living in disobedience, it doesn't matter. If we need greater revelation of God in our lives, if we need a greater experience of God in our lives, it's not what we do for God that matters, but when we live a life of obedience is what matters to God. You know, I like it when God says in book of Job, in chapter 2, he tells Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? Can you imagine God telling Satan, have you considered my son Job? You know why? Because Job lived an obedient life. He lived a life of obedience to what God had called him to. I want us to understand as we begin this book of Zechariah, as we go through this part by part, it's not just for our knowledge to increase and for us to say, I know the book of Zechariah well now. But it's so that it leads us to greater obedience. And the more we obey the word of God, the more he reveals himself to us. So now the question to ask yourself is this, how is your obedience to God? How are you living your life? God has given you commands. God has given you characteristic traits that he needs you to live. God has given you things that you need to obey. Have you been obedient to God or have you been procrastinating or willfully disobedient to God? If you are praying, God, give me a greater revelation of yourself. And if you are living a disobedient life, it's time that we repent and we come to God and say, Lord, until I obey, I know the revelation will not come and begin to obey the voice of God. As we read on from verse 8, I'll first read from verse 8 to verse 11 so that we get the big picture of what I'm trying to communicate and what the book is saying. And then we will look verse by verse. Then we will look verse by verse. I have three points today from verse 7 to 17. The first point is Christ's presence with his people. Christ's presence with his people. Let's read verse 8 onward. During the night I had a vision and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. Verse 9, if you can read along with me, please. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. Verse 11, and they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. 
We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole earth, whole world at rest and in peace. Let's go back to verse 8 now. And in verse 8, what do we see? During the night I had a vision and there before me was a man mounted. And he goes on to say what he saw in the vision. Now I want us to remember that he is, because it says night, some people mistake it to be he was dreaming. Dream is what you see when you are sleeping. Vision is what you see when you are awake. So Zechariah, in one sense, is awake in that night and he is seeing these visions. And most authors agree together to say that all eight visions that he sees came about in one night. In one night. He sees this. It's as if God is giving him the entire picture of what is going to happen to the future, in the future to Israel. And he is revealing to them as a message of encouragement so that these, these people who are so discouraged having come from exile back to Judah and who are going through this trouble would be encouraged to know that God is still in control. So these visions come to him. It's a revelation from God that Zechariah gets. What do we see here? What did Zechariah see here? He see, saw a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the ravine behind him and were red, brown, and white horses. Now we find that there were... There's a mention of horses behind this man who's among the myrtle trees. We have to assume that those horses also had a rider on it. Maybe the angelic hosts that were there behind him. Now the question that we can ask ourselves is this. It says he saw a man. He's, he's specifically saying there's something unique about this man. He's not describing the ones that are riding the other horses, but he says that there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. Who is this man? What do we understand? For us to understand who this man is, we have to go to verse 11. And verse 11 says, And they reported, These horses, the riders who went into all the earth, they came back and they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. Who was this? The angel of the Lord. So the man is the angel of the Lord in the form of a man. And here Zechariah is seeing this man in the red horse and he's asking the question, who is this? And he's able to get the answer in verse 11. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was among them. Now I want you to notice this, that whenever in the Old Testament it specifies the angel of the Lord, we need to be able to do a deeper study in that place because very often when it mentioned the angel of the Lord, it was referring to the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. Pre-incarnate. In fact, if you read the NKJV, in the NKJV, whenever it refers to the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ, the angel is spelt in capital A as I have put it in the form here. It's capital A. So when you see the capital A as the angel of the Lord, you need to understand it is Jesus Christ what it is talking about. So what's it saying in one sense? That Jesus was there among the myrtle trees in his pre-incarnate form. 
Where else do we see this? We read in Genesis chapter 16. We know the story of Hagar. How she was thrown out of her house by her master Abraham and Sarah. And there the angel of the Lord meets her. In verse 7 we read, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Now in verse 7 we see this, that it's the angel of the Lord. And verse, verse number 13, what do we read? Verse 13 it says, She gave this name to the Lord. And you will find it is L-O-R-D in capital in the scriptures. Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I now have seen the one who sees me. This is one example. Let's look at another example. In Exodus chapter 3, a story that we are all familiar with, with Moses' encounter with God. There it says in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Who appeared? The angel of the Lord appeared in the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was, not, uh, bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And we read on in verse 4, verse 4, when the Lord saw who was in the bush, the angel of the Lord. And now we read, when the Lord saw that he was gone over to, the, to look, God called to him from within the bush saying, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. There are several more examples. You, Pastor Victor preached about Gideon a few days back. There also you see the story of how the angel of the Lord came and met Gideon. And then he calls the same angel as Lord and offers worship unto him. And angels do not accept worship. And we know that it was the Son of Man, like we see in the story of Daniel, when three were thrown into the furnace, there was the fourth, the Son of Man. It's the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To understand that Christ was among his people. The other riders probably were normal angels. They were not the Messiah. They were the normal angel. But there's a one specific angel that we need to know as we study this. This we call as interpreter angel. Interpreter angel. This is the angel to whom Zechariah keeps asking the question. You will see this all through these eight visions. He'll keep asking the question, what does this mean, Lord? What does this mean, and the interpreter angel is the one who will answer him to say, I will show you. Sometimes he himself shows, sometimes the angel of the Lord with a capital A, which is the pre-incarnate form of Jesus, he shows what it is going to be. Let's look at verse 8b again. You know, it says, when he was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. You know, the myrtle trees... You will have the picture come up on your screen. Myrtle trees were very common in Israel, especially in the whole region, including Assyria and Persia. These were ornamental trees, more like bushes and plants, but they could go up to a height of about 30 feet. They were fragrant when they were crushed, so they were very common. So you see the angel of the Lord is among the myrtle tree. Theologians who try to give meaning to this agree, all of them agree, since it's an apocalyptic writing, they try to find meaning for everything that is given because it's a vision, right? 
So here they say, myrtle tree is referring to the nation of Israel. So it's as if God is trying to tell them that though Israel is going through a troubled time, that Christ, the pre-incarnate form, God himself, the triune God, is among the myrtle tree to say that Christ is with his people. And where are they? If you notice in the same verse, they are in a ravine. That means it's a hollow place. You will find different translations given. It's a hollow place. It's a deep place. It's a valley. It's not on the level ground. It's a little lower. What that shows is that Israel's degradation. The myrtle trees were, were gone so low, they were in a ravine, in a valley, in a hollow place, in a deep place. And in that place, Jesus is there with them. The place where the, where the angel of God is standing is a ravine, it's a hollow place, and Jesus is with them. What a beautiful thing, isn't it, to understand. If you think of it, think of it in this big picture now. Israel is degraded so much. The myrtle trees have gone down to the ravine. And Jesus, the angel of the Lord, is with them. My friends, what does that speak to us? It speaks to us to know no matter what we go through, no matter where we are, Christ never leaves us. If he could be there with them in the pre-revelation of Jesus Christ in the pre-incarnate form in the Old Testament. How much more not with us now in the New Testament when he is revealed as the Son of God and then the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us no matter what situation we are in. God is still with us. Hallelujah. We may be in a ravine. We may be in a hollow place. We may be in the peak. We may be in a flat ground. It doesn't matter. What matters is no matter how degraded I am, no matter where I have gone to, Christ the Lord is with us. Christ the Lord is with us. That's exciting. That's exciting, isn't it? Sometimes, my friends, we may not feel God's presence. But it does not mean that God has left us. God is still with us. I know many of us are going through struggles because of COVID and because of what's happening in the economy, because of what's happening around the world. It's leaving you confused. You may be feeling like Israel. God, I trusted in you and I came back to you thinking there'll be prosperity, thinking you'll do the miracles that you promised to do, but nothing is happening. But even in the midst of your questions, even though you don't get the answers right now, you need to understand that God is still with you. God is still with you. What a beautiful, beautiful thing, isn't it? To know that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. It's not a cliched saying. It's not an out-of-the-mind promise to claim. It's something that should turn our hearts to say, Lord, I don't understand my situation right now, but I know if you could be with the people in the land of Jerusalem, in a pre-incarnate form, in the ravine, you are able to be with me. Hallelujah. What a wonderful God we have. You know, let's continue on. The horses symbolize God's activity in governing the earth. Horses symbolize. Many theologians don't want to give interpretation to each color of the horse. 
But there's something about these horses. You find the same horses being mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. And the same colors that are mentioned there. So there should be something. So some theologians say the red horse points to war and bloodshed. Red horse points to war and bloodshed. White horse points to victory and glory and success or triumph. So white horse is representing that. And there is a horse called a light brown. Some translations will say. Some translations say sorrel. Some translations will use another word, dappled. But the Hebrew meaning for that is not very clear. But what it means at least is this, that it's got a mix of colors. In this mix of colors, what it means is it's got, it's a mix of mercy and judgment. And what are they doing? They're going all throughout the earth and they're trying to find out what is happening. We will look at that very soon. Let's go to verse 9, Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 9. I hope you're liking this verse-by-verse study so that we can go a little deeper. It gets exciting as we go along. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 9, if you'll read along with me, please. I asked, what are these, my Lord? Zechariah is asking this. What are these, my Lord? And the angel, this is the interpreter angel, the angel who was talking with me. Whenever he says the angel who was talking with me, it's the interpreter angel. I will show you what they are. My friends, you know, I was, I was just thinking about this. Zechariah gets this vision after three months of, of proclaiming the prophecy. He could have said, I'm such a spiritual man. He's from a priestly background. He's a priest himself. He has sacrificed his life in exile. He's a spiritual guy having come to Judah. And Haggai and he together are the spiritual leaders. He could have said, I know what God is showing me. But he does not understand. And he says, what are these, my Lord? My friends, if God is showing you something, you don't have to act super spiritual trying to give it an interpretation even though you do not know it. It's okay to ask questions to God. It's okay to ask God, Lord, I don't understand this. Could you reveal to me what this is? And that's exactly what Zechariah does. An angel does not get angry with him. Angel says, I will show you what they are. I will show you what they are. And he goes on to show what they are. We will read verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, Then the man standing among the myrtle tree explained. Listen, he asked the question to the interpreter angel, and who is answering? The angel of the Lord, which is the man standing among the myrtle tree, explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth, and they reported to the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. You know, the question is, the people saying, you know, the horses went out throughout the earth and they came back with a report. And what is the report? Report says the whole world is under peace. And the report was right in one sense of it. I'll come to it. It's not a positive peace as we understand it is. I'll come to it. And now, some people say, why did God have to send horses all through? 
Doesn't God, is, is he not an omnipresent God? Is he not an omniscient God who knows everything? Like it describes in Psalm 139, you'll know, Lord, when I sit down and when I rise up, you know every word before it is on my tongue. Yes, God knows all of it already. But John Calvin, one of the theologians, he points out this quote, God doesn't need angels to inform him as to the state of things on the earth. But he employs this language in order to stoop to our weakness. End of quote. What is he saying? He's employing this language so that we can understand that God knows all what's happening in the earth. Israel is thinking, Lord, you have forgotten about us. You do not know the struggle we are going through. God is trying to communicate your saying, I know not only what is happening with you, I know what is happening across the earth. When they come back and they say, the whole world is under peace. Can you imagine Israel? It's like rubbing salt in the wound. We are already struggling and we think we are the God's chosen, the children of Abraham, the chosen ones. We are in trouble and the world around us, our oppressors, our enemies, those who hate God are under peace. It must have left a lot of questions within them. But then this peace is not the kind of peace that you and me can understand. It's like this. This is the same Hebrew word which is used when it said in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was quiet. They were marrying, they were partying, they were having fun, thinking as if there's no end of the world. They lived a merry life. Everybody who looked at them thought they were arrived. But what they did not know is that the judgment of God is coming upon them. It's the same in the days of Noah when people thought everything was hunky-dory, everything was going well. What they did not know is the judgment of God is coming. So what God is trying to say here is that yes, there is a peace, but this is not the kind of peace that I want to bless them with. This is the kind of peace that they think they have it. In fact, literally during Darius's time, the Medo-Persian Empire had expanded so big that there was peace in most nations. There were no more wars because Darius, it says, had fought 19 battles in order to subdue all his enemies. And there was peace literally on the earth. But in the midst of that, God is reminding them that there is coming a judgment on the people. So don't let the prosperity of others disturb your faith. Don't let just because everybody else, Lord, those who don't love you are doing better. Those who, those who Lord, are, are just not living a life right are doing better. They are getting promotions. They are being blessed with money. Their children are getting married. Their, their, their children are being blessed in their studies. They are being blessed so much. They are having children where we don't have. We tend to compare ourselves thinking those people are at ease. My friends, we need to realize it's a pseudo-peace. It's a pseudo-prosperity. What we have in God is much greater. And that's what God is trying to communicate through Zechariah here. I want to move to the next verse, verse 12. And I call this as Christ's prayer for his people. <clears throat> 
Christ's prayer for his people. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 12. Let's read this. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind words, comforting words to the angel who talked with me. It's the angel of the Lord who is praying. Now this is the verse that really got me studying deeper. When I marked it, I said, hey, no, there's something wrong here. I've never seen angels praying. Let me go deep down and study who this angel is. That's what helped me to arrive at this aspect of the pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord with a capital A spelled for angel. And here, Jesus Christ is praying on behalf of Jerusalem, on behalf of Judah. What is he praying? He's saying, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? In one sense, they had already completed 70 years as prophesied by Jeremiah, as, as recalled by Daniel. They had completed the 70 years and they had returned from exile back to their homeland. And the angel of God, that is Jesus Christ, is praying, reminding God, 70 years are over, would you restore mercy for your people? This is like the prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. I think a few years back, Pastor Ivan had preached on that, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Please go back and listen to it. How beautifully Jesus prays, not only for his disciples, but for those who will believe through them. That means he prayed for you and for me in John chapter 17. And it's the same kind of prayer that Jesus is praying in the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 12, standing in the gap between Judah and between God and saying, Lord, how long will you withhold mercy from Judah? My friends, he's doing the same in the New Testament, like Paul says in Romans chapter 8. At verse 33 to 34, he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus Christ right now is sitting at the right hand of God and he is interceding for you and for me and for this world and for Jerusalem, for Israel and for the peace of the earth and for God's kingdom to be established, for God's church to flourish. God, Jesus is sitting there at the right hand of God and he's interceding. And why does this intercession come? Paul concludes the chapter by saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Hallelujah. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And my friends, even though we may be down in the ravine, or in the hollow place, or in the valley, Christ's intercession for us never stops. If he could do that in the Old Testament, 
How much more after the redemption on the cross of Calvary would he be interceding for us? You know, one author put it this way, Robert Murray. He was a 19th century Scottish pastor. He said this, quote, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. End of quote. My friends, John Murray is saying, Robert Murray is saying here, if he knows that Christ is praying in the next room, and he knows that, he can pray face a million enemies. Why? Because he knows Christ is praying. And the distance doesn't matter. Christ is praying for us in the heavens. Who are the enemies that you ought to face today? Who are the people that you are fearful of today? What is the future that you are apprehensive about today? What is it that is causing you anxiety? What is it that causing you pain and stirring you hopelessness in your heart? You need to remind yourself of this today as you go into pray, as you go into your work, as you go into your study, as you go into those impossible situations. Please remind yourself. Sit there and imagine saying, Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, is interceding on my behalf. And if he is interceding on my behalf, I know there will be victory. I know there will be success. I know there will be a fulfillment of his word. Because Christ is interceding for me. Some of us are very proud. We've said, we're very proud saying, my mom was a very praying mother. It's because of our prayers today I'm here. Praise God for your mother. Some of us may say, my father was a praying father. Because of him, I'm here today. Praise God for your father. But much more than your mother, much more than your father, Christ himself, the son of God, is interceding for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is interceding for us. What a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, the word of the Lord is so powerful. We can go on and on, but I need to move on. Let's move to the third point in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 14 onwards. I call this point as Christ's passion for his people. Christ's passion for his people. I will read all these verses together so that you get the big picture. And then we jump into verse by verse. Verse 14 says this, Then the angel of the Lord who was speaking to me, this is the interpreter angel said, proclaim this word, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. These are the comforting words, remember, this is the comforting words that he's speaking. Verse 15 says, and I am very angry with the nation that feels secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. And verse 16 to 17, it says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return. Just see the promises that are there. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out, 
over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Verse 17, proclaim further this, that the Lord Almighty says, my towns again will be filled with overflow and prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. What a beautiful thing, isn't it? You see this. Let's go back to look at verse 14. Verse 14, what do we see here? We see the Lord is jealous for us because of his love. Then the angel of the Lord who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem. Why is he saying this? No, for most of us, the word jealousy, we look at it from the negative connotation. Yes, jealousy is defined as if supposing someone else has something better than what I have, let's say I have an Android, Samsung phone, someone else has an iPhone, the latest one, or a foldable Microsoft phone, and I feel jealous about that person. Or imagine, maybe there's a girl who's fallen in love with a guy, and the guy is not speaking to her, but he's speaking to other girls who are prettier than her. She's jealous of those girls. That's in the negative connotation. But when God says he's jealous for Israel, Israel had nothing better for him to, jealous, to be jealous of Israel. Can you imagine? They're down in the dumps. What can God be jealous of him? He says he's jealous because of his passion for his people, because of his love for his people. It's a protective jealousy. It's like this for a husband and wife who are in a legitimate relationship, who are married in this holy matrimony. They're committed to each other. If the wife is speaking to another man other than her husband, if the husband feels jealous over this wife speaking to the other husband, it's a protective jealousy to protect their marriage from stray because the jealousy will trigger him to ask the right questions to the wife and to put some boundary conditions in their marriage so that their marriage does not stray away. And God is saying there's nothing wrong in one being jealous as long as it ebbs out of the love that God has for us or a person has for another. So God is jealous for us. Can you imagine God standing next to you and telling you, I am jealous of you. I'm jealous for you. My zeal goes out for you. My zeal burns for you. In fact, the Hebrew word for jealousy there, they say, it can also be translated as something that burns or something that glows. To say that God is burning with jealousy for us. Why? So that he can protect us and he can take us on. Hallelujah. Aren't you, aren't you glad that God is so passionate about you? He's madly in love with you and me. Hallelujah. Let's read verse 15. The Lord is angry with the nations and I am very angry. In fact, you know, he starts by saying, I'm very, very angry. Another translation says, he is in great anger towards the nations. That means it's not a small anger. It's the same word he uses, I'm in great jealous. I'm jealous for you, very jealous for you. And he says, I'm very angry with the nations. And he's trying to communicate this, that feel secure. I was, remember, they were in rest and peace. Remember, they feel secure. 
But God is saying, I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. My friends, I, I want us to dwell here a little bit. This verse can confuse many of us. You can imagine, God told the nations, go punish Israel. And after they punish, he is holding them to judgment saying, you went too far. Is that the right thing? It can confuse us that this is where I see the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coming together in a balance. Sovereignty of God as he is in control of everything that happens on the earth, yes. But he does not absolve us of our free will. He's, he told the nations, yes, go punish Israel. But they went too far to slay and to kill and to, to do much more than what God had intended. And God is saying, because they went too far beyond what I had planned for them, I am very angry with these nations. Now you will understand this. Just imagine this. I'm by the roadside. I'm with my son. He's done something wrong in the shop. So I get him out and I'm standing by the footpath and I'm reprimanding him. I'm speaking to him. I'm correcting him and telling him, I will discipline you. I will punish you. And a stranger who's passing by, he hears this conversation. He goes and gets an iron rod and starts beating up my son and punishing him. Yes, I wanted to punish him, but not the way the stranger wants to do. Because though I punish my son, I love him more. I punish him to redeem him. But they punished him to kill him. And that's the difference that God is reminding Israel about. He's encouraging them by saying, listen, this was not my intent that you should struggle this way. But the nation went too far. And they punished you beyond what I had planned. What a beautiful play of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And we see God is bringing that as, a, as an explanation to Israel to say, I will punish those nations, though they may be in rest and in peace. Let's read on in 16 and 17. These are the comforting words which he said he will speak in verse, verse 12 and 13. He said, these are the comforting words. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem. Hallelujah. In one sense of it, it got fulfilled when Christ came and he was born and he died in Jerusalem. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. What a beautiful thing. But in the second sense, it is not yet fulfilled fully because Christ is going to come back again for that battle of Armageddon, which we will look at when we go to Zechariah chapter 14. When Christ will return in all his glory, in mercy to judge the world. And then he goes on, and there my house will be rebuilt. Now, this is a prophecy that God fulfilled in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. The temple got rebuilt and it was completed. There was joy. There was festivity. So this was accomplished during the time of Zechariah's life. And then it says, and the measuring line will be stretched out. Now, in the previous minor prophets, you would remember whenever God says the measuring line will be stretched out or a plumb line will be set on Jerusalem, it was to say he is, he is measuring their sin and he will punish them. 
But in this case, it's not in that sense of it. He is saying the measuring line will be set up in order to build Jerusalem, in order to establish Jerusalem. And he goes on to declare, he says, proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says, my towns will again overflow with prosperity. You know, the image Israelites usually had about prosperity was as in the times of David and Solomon. Where they really were prosperous, the nation, they were like a superpower then. And they expected God to do it again. But it was not happening. But God is saying it will happen in the future. And I like this. And the Lord will comfort Zion. Here's a word that he uses to refer to Jerusalem. And he goes on to use the same word when God will return to Zion. That's to say a place where God will rule. He will return to Zion. He will comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem once again. My friends, God has a special place in his heart for Jerusalem because it's his chosen place. No matter what is happening politically now, we need to know this, that God will establish Jerusalem in years to come. And he will do it. And I want you to know, Zechariah did not see the fulfillment of all what he prophesied. All the promises, there were some that he saw as fulfillment. There were some that are yet to come for Zechariah. They were in futuristic. Some of it, how it got fulfilled. We will see that in the second vision when we see the judgment on the nations that is there, which is elaborated. And I also want you to know that this first vision is more like a big picture vision. The rest of the seven visions are almost like explanation of this, the details of how it happens. The next one we see will be related to the judgment of the nation, and we will see more on it. I won't go into it. Now, coming back to the promises, there are times when we would have received a promise, and in our finite mind and thinking, we always expect it to be fulfilled immediately. But you need to know that when God gives a promise, he has the big picture in mind. He will stay true to his promise. Just because it didn't get fulfilled in your lifetime, it does not mean the promise is not true. The promise is still true what he has given you. What is he saying? He will fulfill it in the generations to come. There are promises that God has given me. He will fulfill it in my lifetime. There are promises I may die with, not seeing it fulfilled. But his promises are still true because his word is true for a thousand generations. And he will stay true to his word. And we will see slowly, vision after vision, how each of these promises got fulfilled for Israel and for Jerusalem and through the church for the world and through Christ, we will see how this happens as we continue to look. I want to conclude with this Jewish fable. It's a Jewish fable. It tells about a rabbi and Elijah journeying together. They would go places, and there was this particular day they went and they stayed at this. They went to a town where there was this poor man and a wife, and they just had all the property they had was one cow. So it was already night, so they wanted to stay. They asked the poor couple, saying, can we stay here? They said, please come in. They went in and stayed. 
And the couple was so gracious, they gave them the best food, they gave them their own bed, and they went and slept near the kitchen fire. And in the morning when they woke up, they found the cow was dead. And Elijah and the rabbi went on on a journey. <clears throat> the next evening, they came across to this rich man's house. They said, can we stay here? The rich man said, yes. He did not treat them well. He just gave them bread and water. He made them stay in the cow shed, and he did not give them anything so pleasurable. The next day morning after Elijah woke up, he, he, for the kindness this rich man had shown, he, he said, get a mason. And he got the broken wall of the, repaired, of the rich man repaired. And the rabbi was observing this, and he was a little confused. He couldn't keep silent anymore. So he asked Elijah, is this fair that the poor man who treated us well, you let the cow die there, and this rich man who treated us badly, you are letting, you're building a wall for his kindness? Elijah turned to him and said, when we stayed in that poor man's house, it was ordained that the wife would die that night. But before their kindness, instead the cow died. And in this, as for this rich man, in the wall that is going to be repaired, there's a chest of gold inside of it. If the rich man repairs it, he will find it. That's why I've got a mason to repair it so that he doesn't find it, the miser rich man. So what's the moral of this fable that the Jewish people share? They say we don't have to understand everything that God is doing in our lives. All we need to do is align knowing that he is sovereign and he is in control of our lives. My friends, I want to remind us this day as we studied from chapter 1, verse 7 to 17, the presence of the angel of God is with us. Presence of Christ is with us. Secondly, Christ is praying for his people. Christ is praying for us. Thirdly, that Christ's passion never dies out for us. He's still jealous for us. He's still madly in love with us. And he says, he will build us again. He will establish us again. As I said, this is a general theme. We will look in the next part about the four horns and the four craftsmen. And we will see how God brings judgment on the nation. But as we close today, I want you to ask yourself questions. If you can close your eyes for a moment. Just ponder on all what we have heard. I know there's so much to unpack from these 10 verses. But I just want to summarize and ask you some questions. Are you obedient to God? How's your obedience? Maybe you have a desire for a greater revelation of God. But how's your obedience? If you have been indulging in things that you ought not to, would you seek the Lord right now and say, Lord, I repent of that disobedience. And I come to you, Lord, seeking your forgiveness. Seek God's forgiveness. If you felt abandoned, if you felt that the prosperity and promises of God were for the others, repent now and remember and be reminded that Christ's presence is amidst his people. It's with you. Christ's presence is with you. Holy Spirit is with you. Would you thank him now saying, Lord, I am among the myrtle trees. 
I'm among, I'm in the ravine, in a hollow place, in a valley. But I thank you that your presence is with me. Would you remind yourself right now and say, Lord, thank you that you are praying for me. Sit there and imagine Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, praying on your behalf right now. And would you say, thank you, Lord, that you are my best intercessor, the one who constantly is praying for me. Would you finally remind yourself and thank God saying, thank you for your passion. Thank you for your jealousy for me. Thank you for your love for me. Thank you for your promises. Thank you, they are A and amen. They will be fulfilled. They will not be, God will not withhold it. Hallelujah. Father, I pray right now that you who's brought this word alive to us, that you, O oh God, continue to minister to us through the week from this word, that every moment we will be reminded that your presence is with us. Every time we pray for others, we will know you are praying for us. Every time we feel jealous of others or, Lord, when we feel love of others, we will know that you are jealous for us and you love us. Remind us, Holy Spirit, through this week that we will live in the reality of your love, the reality of your presence and your prayer for us. We thank you, we praise you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and have a wonderful week experiencing the presence of Jesus Christ in your lives. Amen.